Game of Thrones. Oh my god. There's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them. There's this fight scene with his hair. Winter's Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason. I'm Christina. And today we are reviewing episode six, Beyond the Wall. This was directed by Alan Taylor, who is the most reoccurring director for Game of Thrones. He's done seven episodes before. And written by Benioff and Weiss, Rotten Tomatoes gave it an 85% and IMDb a 9.6. And I know those are both high, but they're usually not split quite so much on their decision. I think this may reflect popular opinions about the episode and the season as a whole. Oh, for sure. I mean, we've gotten a lot of emails and it's only Monday night. And some of our listeners are saying they loved the episode and others are saying they hate it and they've given us really long emails about why they hate it. And most of their points really valid. We happen to have loved the episode, but I do see some issues. We will review both the good and the bad. I think Rotten Tomatoes summed it up really well. They said, Beyond the Wall delivered the epic battles and plot twists that are expected from the penultimate episode of a GOT season. Although sometimes in ways that defied logic. But fire and ice, it's what we were promised and oh how it delivers. All right, I'm feeling a little bit better about this episode. Time heals all, I guess you would say. <laughs> are you ready to get into our deep dive? Because we do have a lot to talk about today. In this episode, we're going to go over the fun facts the title meaning, and who we didn't see this episode. Then we'll get into our crow's eye view where we'll look at all the locations, primarily Dragonstone and Winterfell because we didn't talk about them on the instant coffee. But we do have some information to flesh out the scenes north of the wall. And then we'll go to Raven Rating and MVB, including our poll results for Most Valuable Bannermen for the episode. And finally, Clatcher's Comments. And obviously, we have to mention, Jason, HBO Nordic in Spain accidentally made this episode available on demand for an hour. There's a lot of issues with HBO lately. Yeah, they had the hack a couple of episodes ago we spoke about. Last year, three or four episodes were released to the public by mistake. Yes, there were scripts released this time. I should say it wasn't by mistake. I think they were screeners and those got leaked last year. But we mentioned in the last episode, it doesn't seem to be touching their live viewership numbers which are still doing phenomenal. Now let's just get the sad things out of the way <laughs> right at the top. We recognized our deaths for this episode, which included a couple of free folk people unnamed, one White Walker, Thoros, Uncle Benjen, and Viserion the Dragon. What I want to come back to there is this is apparently the fourth penultimate episode of a season to include a stark death. And I didn't realize till I started going back to review that. Yeah, we had season one, Ned, when we were introduced to the way Game of Thrones plays the game. We never thought that would happen. One of the most shocking. We thought it would be the most shocking ever until... No, they keep <laughs> topping it. Season three, Rob and Catelyn. Season six, Rickon. And of course, season seven, Uncle Benjen. Of course, we have Jon Snow's death, but that was season five's finale. Oh, okay. And we're just talking about penultimate episode, which is the second to last. 
And I suppose actual deaths too, which it's well, worth he did saying. Actually, die. Yeah, well, without being brought back, it's worth saying we don't know for sure that Benjen is completely gone, not to come back as a full-blown white, but I'm pretty uh, sure that's the end of his character. Yeah, I think so. One of the things we remarked on in the instant coffee was how beautiful this filming was, the scenes we got, the visuals. I looked into it a little more. Most of those scenes beyond the wall were filmed in Iceland, but the frozen lake sequence was filmed in a rock quarry in Belfast, Ireland. Yeah, I watched the film on that. They actually made the ice out of cement, all of that area, and then painted it and sculpted it to look like real ice with cracks in it and all that stuff. Isn't that crazy? Wow, that's amazing. We have some more fun facts dispersed throughout the episode about what it was like to film that Frozen Lake sequence. What are they going to do with that cement now? (laughs) I don't know. Parking lot in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) A bunch of basketball courts. And let's just talk about the issue that a lot of people had with this episode, which was the time difficulties we've been seeing sort of escalating all season, but really ramped up to a 10 here. We're mostly talking about the length of time that it took for Gendry to get from our group back to the wall, send a raven down to Danny and Dragonstone, and then for Danny to get from Dragonstone up to where John and crew were. And there have been people who have really analyzed this and looked at in-universe how long does it take a raven to get from one location to another, approximately how fast could a dragon fly that distance. Even if you go down to the math, it doesn't seem there's any way it can work out. I think they've managed to kind of get around this for other episodes, but because they boxed themselves in here, there's no other explanation except that it really doesn't work in reality. In fact, earlier this season, writer and staff lore master Brian Cogman was repeatedly questioned by fans on Twitter about certain characters that were moving around too fast, rushing to get them where they needed to be for plot points without thought to realism. Cogman said these were still plausible movements, given that they avoided saying how much time passed between episodes, which makes sense. The example they used was, for all we know, it might have taken Grey Worm months to reach Casterly Rock when they went from Dragonstone, because we're not being told how much time was it since we last saw him in between these episodes. It's still a stretch, but I guess it can kind of fit in. Well, the week before this episode aired, Cogman quit his Twitter, closed his account, so he can't answer any new questions about this time issue problem. I can understand where he's coming from. He has to fit these storylines in seven episodes, and he needs to make it work. Sometimes you have to throw out some of the rules, and some of the most boring rules that would be in TV or movies is time. How long does it take to travel somewhere? We hate traveling in real life. Why would we have to go through each travel in a fantasy world? And we've spoken about this before, right? If they were going to show it to us, that would be a lot of wasted time that we wouldn't have to get to some of these plot points needing to see them moving around to make it realistic. The only other way to do it would be for them to start explaining a lot of stuff to us. In dialogue, how did this happen? Which is going to feel very expository. Yeah, every time they're like, how did you get here so fast? Right. There's only so many ways you can work that in. So I can definitely understand having an issue with it. In fact, Linda Antonson, co-author with George R.R. Martin of the World of Ice and Fire Sourcebook, commented on this after the episode. She said, this would be the GOT episode where they broke the plot so badly, suspension of disbelief is well and truly dead. So now we've gotten to that point where I think you either need to stop thinking about it. Accept it. 
yeah. and enjoy the ride that we're going on or you're going to kind of get caught up in all of this. And I'm not saying you have to be one way or the other. That's right. kind of where your meter lands and I don't blame you if you can't roll with it. But I think the issue seems like for a very long time, the Double Ds had this script they were working on. They were trying to adapt very closely. They had time for things like geography, movement. Now, as they're getting into their last couple of seasons, which are even more condensed, they see they have a bullet point list of major points they have to cover. How do you make all of those things happen? And what you just said is dramatically simplified. They also have bullet points of how much money they can spend, mm. what to spend on this location, what to spend on this location. Should we spend all this money just showing Jon Snow traveling north and then traveling south? And a lot of other things that they're trying to work in. So, for instance, you know the scene with the zombie bear? Yeah. Which we'll talk more about later. The writers had previously written this in for the last four seasons, but they had to be told by the special effects teams they couldn't afford it. Yeah, I was watching the extras, and he said, basically, they said in a nice way, F you, we cannot afford <laughs> a zombie polar bear. But every year they keep asking, keep asking, and this one they were able to do it. They probably said, hey man, we don't have 10 episodes. We can spend the money now that we're saving on the three extras that we're not going to be doing. It's a polar bear, dude. It's a snow bear, <laughs> and there's a difference, but we'll come to that. My bad. So in the instant coffee, I mentioned I thought this was one of the better episodes of Game of Thrones ever, and I say that because all of the good things were so great. For me, it outweighs. There were some bad things in here. There were some things that were questionable or maybe even just confusing, which we will cover. But between the amazing dialogue, a lot of the questions we got answered between characters, the beautiful action sequences, the fighting, the dragons on screen, it made it all worth it for me. I agree. And listen, you can't make everybody happy. That goes for everyone. That goes for us. That goes we've for HBO. We've learned that in podcasting, right? Yeah, we've learned <laughs> that. We actually just got a review from some guy who is so kind. <laughs> it was titled Fanboys at its Worst. And he called us morons and said that we feel Game of Thrones can do nothing wrong. When in actuality, we point out the things that are iffy and wrong, but we don't spend two hours podcasting about what we hate about that. Instead... We embrace the positives because that's what's fun. That's why we watch these movies. Well, because we, we like this show and there are some shows where we find ourselves maybe not as enjoying it as much and we get into the critiques a bit more. But because it's a podcast, it kind of boils down to our opinion and we have been enjoying it. But it makes me feel for the double D's because this must be difficult to yeah. go through what they're having to try to figure out right now. Look, it's obvious. It's evident that they no longer have a book to go off of and they have to make up some things on their own. And again, I'm guessing the feel is inevitably going to be a little different no matter what. If, if you try to paint someone else's painting, you can get it to look the same. But then if you say, or, or very similar, but then if you say, okay, now make this new painting, but make it in the style of that painting, it, you're going to be able to tell that it's a different person who painted it. Oh, yeah. I think the issue perhaps, and again, just going off my own opinion and what we've gotten from write-ins, is that you had one style for a very long time of the feel of the George R. R. Martin books and the close adaptation. You could see some people begin to get frustrated, even, I think, in season five, when they had to start branching out on their own a little bit and moving forward, definitely into season six. And now it's really sort of culminated in season seven. It's not that it's not good in certain ways for certain people. It's phenomenal television, but it is different in a lot of ways than it used to be. I am a book reader myself, so I, I do see a lot of those 
issues and I love the source material. But the other thing is we haven't had any source material in quite a long time. We'll have more news hopefully on that in our bonus episode for season seven. Let's move it along and talk about the episode title. There was some controversy on what the title was going to be. If you looked at that with the leaked episode that came out early, it listed the title as Death is the Enemy. And I don't know if this was a language translation or something they were playing around with and decided to change the title later. Yeah, oftentimes other countries, movies, Live Free, Die Hard, I forget what it was called in other countries, but they actually completely change the titles of movies and episodes. And I really like that name. I also like Beyond the Wall, which is what we got. But either way, they did talk about that phrase throughout the episode, Death is the Enemy. And without getting too religious, it did remind me of the Bible, and I couldn't figure out which parts exactly. I had to go back and look. I was raised a Catholic, but it's been a long time since I've read the Bible. What I found was that in Corinthians, the order of resurrection, they say, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then in Revelation, the sea has given up its dead and death and Hades gave up their dead and each one was judged according to his deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire This is the second death, until there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. The reason I bring this up is because we discuss a lot how these religions in the world of ice and fire are going to become relevant or play into the bigger storyline. We talked last time about how we saw more religion in the books. They got a lot more into the drowned god that the people of the Iron Islands worship, the many-faced god that we see through Arya when we're in Bravos. The Faith of the Seven, that a good majority of people are worshipping in Westeros when we start this story. But the one that has made most appearances on the TV show seems to be the Lord of Light religion. And two episodes ago, we talked about how they believe there's R'hllor on one side, the God of Light and Fire, and the Great Other on the other side, Cold, Darkness, Death. And Beric talks a lot about that this episode, how he sees things, death being the enemy, And he knows that the enemy always wins, but we have to keep fighting him anyway. And then we also get perhaps this parallel image of the whites going into the ice. And it looks like a small lake. And then it being lit on fire with the dragon fire, we see it smashing up the ice and the water. So I wonder if they were trying to pull some connections into that. I was just thinking, because you're talking about the Bible. If there's a catastrophe and the human race is pretty much wiped out, And then thousands of years from now, whatever being is around here is excavating or something. And they find some writing from us. And it's the Game of Thrones books. (laughs) If they think that that would be like the Bible. That's our real history. This is our history. (laughs) And like the New Testament is when the dragons are born. Well, if they searched (laughs) our house, that's definitely what they would find most of. (laughs) Well, it's funny you bring up the cave paintings. And we did talk about how the more we learn, it seems this has been a history that was repeated over the years. There have been several winters. Maybe there have even been several long nights. And I'm anxious to see if we learn more about that through Sam now that he's getting his hands on, hopefully, some of that relevant information wherever he stops next. He can look into those books he took. And along those lines, we got a really great comment. You and I missed something from that Sam scene where he left the Citadel. Drew of House Kerrigan wrote in to say, While Sam is about his tirade after Gilly's reveal and storming about the room, He takes the book she was reading and gives it to the child, to baby Sam. So this should be a given. The book is with them when they leave, and they will have the proof of the annulment later. Yeah, I think so. A lot of people were freaking out because Sam didn't figure it out when she said it first. 
But I think this makes it more interesting because he will inevitably figure that out. Yeah, and I think the pieces are going to be put together jointly. I agree. A lot of people say he might figure it out while talking to someone like Bran. They each have a piece of the puzzle and it kind of comes together to form the full story. But we didn't see any Bran this episode, nor Sam. We also didn't get Cersei, Jamie, and Bronn. No King's Landing. I think this is one of only eight episodes in the entirety of Game of Thrones where they did not show King's Landing at all. We didn't see Grey Worm, Missandei, or the Unsullied, Euron, Theon, or Yara, and Melisandre. So it was really slimmed down to a select few that we covered in this penultimate episode. Okay, are you ready to get into our crow's eye view? We open up in Dragonstone. We didn't talk about this conversation a lot last time. But Danny tells Tyrion she likes the fact that he's not a hero. Heroes do stupid things and they die. She cites Drogo, Jorah, Dario, even Jon Snow. To which Tyrion points out all of those men fell in love with her. They then discuss the potential meeting with Cersei. Tyrion thinks they will need to go with two armies and three dragons so nobody can touch Danny. He knows Cersei will be laying a trap. This will be a difficult negotiation. So he struck a deal with Jaime. Jaime will keep a grip on the Lannister forces, and knowing Cersei will be provocative, Tyrion will keep Danny from doing anything impulsive. He points out here she's prone to losing her temper, i.e. burning the Tarleys before they could discuss it. This is starting to get her angry, but he says he wants to teach her how to understand her enemies. I don't have a temper. <laughs> he wants to ensure her vision endures and the wheel stays broken. And that takes them into the topic of what happens after she dies. He wants to discuss this succession, since she has no heirs and can't have children. I understand where he's coming from, but I do think it's a little early to start talking about that. She hasn't even done it yet, gotten the crown. But also, this is a very touchy subject for Danny because of Mary Mazder way back when, what she did with her unborn baby. Mm. She pretty much made her infertile. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. We got that weird prophecy from her that she'll have children again when all of these things happen, which we will get into in a minute. So it's very touchy for her. I agree with you, and I can see why it's difficult for her to talk about this, but I disagree in the sense that they may not have time to go over this. When you're doing something this important, Danny is a visionary, and all of the people that are following her truly believe in what she's trying to accomplish here. They've come over to her side because they want to see her do something different and in a way that will last. However, Danny is also a conqueror. She's very brave. She's not afraid to rush into battle. He mentions at Blackwater Rush, there were hundreds of arrows flying at her. If any one of them had hit her, if she had been taken down north of the wall this episode, what would happen? There is no plan for who rules after her and how do we follow this same plan you've been doing. He actually brings up a couple of really great suggestions. He says there's other methods that exist in the kingdom right now for selection. The Night's Watch has the choosing to pick their Lord Commander, and the Ironborn have a king's mood. So this is why she has Tyrion as her hand of the king, to think about things like this, to plan for her and be her right-hand man. When he's bringing up some truth, she kind of needs to listen, even when it's <clears throat> difficult. And I know that Tyrion's in a bad position because all of his suggestions have not been panning out so well lately. Yeah. And I think it's more to do with that than anything else, that she doesn't want to hear anything more from him. The way she treats him is very different from last season. Hmm. If you remember last season when she gave him the pin, it was a great relationship that they were having. 
Now it feels very strained and it worries me. Not that I think Tyrion is going to say, oh, I'm mad now and I'm going to switch sides because that's not him. But no. you need Tyrion, one, to be on his best game. And if he's stressed out and feel like he can't say anything to her, that is just going to snowball into a worse and worse environment. Not only that, but it's starting to feel like she's actually suspicious of him. She's wondering if she needs to worry that he might be more on his family's side. Is he planning for her death? Wouldn't you, though? I think I would have to consider it, but I'm also nervous that after everything Danny is going through, it's making her more suspicious, starting to become a little paranoid. I just, I hate to see even glimmers of the things that happened to her other family members that led them down a wrong path. Right. I know it's dangerous to trust people, but after proving themselves in the past, Danny has always done this. If you prove your loyalty to me, now you're on board and I do trust you. We had some different opinions about this. Christina wrote in to say, I'm feeling really disappointed with the treatment of Tyrion by Danny. She started off the whole conversation with him by sort of insulting him, or being insensitive at least. And then he asked her the hard questions and he told her some hard truths, which is what he's supposed to do as Hand of the Queen. But she gets salty and loses her temper just like he says she does. So I agree, I can see both sides of this, but I do think they're going to have to sit down and get on the same page, at least with her inner circle, with the logistics of her vision and even the hard topics of conversation. Now this brought up another really good question. There was a few hints throughout the episode about the possibility of both John and Danny having children eventually. When Jorah refuses to take Longclaw back from John, he says, I want it to stay in your family and go to your children after you, or something along those lines. We also hear a couple of times about Danny not being able to have children anymore except her dragons. So people have been wondering, for magically resurrected people like Jon Snow or Beric Dondarrion, can they have children? Does this change something in them when they die and come back to life? And then another point... If John and Danny were to get together because they both have Targaryen blood, does that somehow strengthen it and make it possible for her to have children again? Is this maybe a reason why Targaryens wed Targaryens for so long? Strengthen their ability to have children, maintain their control over the dragons? I don't know. That might be possible. I think if you have a baby with a Targaryen, a baby comes out and an egg. <laughs> it's a dragon. You get a baby and a dragon egg. Bonus. <laughs> well, the thing is, and I don't think this will ever come to pass, but if neither John nor Danny could have children, then this bloodline of Rhaegars would go extinct. In which case, the last blood relative would be Gendry. And we've talked about that before. House Baratheon intermarried with the Targaryens. So Robert Baratheon, way back, was actually part Targaryen. His grandmother, or his great-grandmother, I can't remember, was a younger Targaryen princess. And thus, Robert would actually be the second cousin to Rhaegar and Daenerys. It puts Gendry up there, but I just don't think that's the kind of story we're telling that it's going to come all the way back around to him. I'm not sure, unless Danny just decides, after meeting him and learning some of these things, he's a good guy and she wants to name him successor, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't really see that. Are we off the thoughts that maybe Tyrion is a Targaryen now that there's no three riders? I know the death of Assyrian has caused a lot of people to dismiss that now. I kind of would have to agree. I think if it was going to come out, you would have seen it in his interaction with that dragon. And there's also the fact that 
there's none of the big clues we had in the books that make Tyrion seem like a Targaryen. That light silver hair, the one purple eye, they didn't bring any of that in. He would have looked so cool with a purple eye. (laughs) Well, and back to the action at Dragonstone, the end of these scenes was where Tyrion follows Danny out as she approaches her dragons. He insists they can't afford to lose her and doesn't want her to risk it by leaving, but she's not sitting by idly anymore. You told me to do nothing before. Well, Tyrion is right on this, but who else is going to save our hero, Jon Snow? She is hot-headed, but that can be a good thing and a bad thing. Always, right? You need a little bit of that in your ruler. Absolutely, and thank goodness for our hero she decided to do this. I also think there was the underlying point of she wanted slash needed to see for herself, right? She says it afterwards. I got what you were saying, but you can't really understand until you see it with your own eyes. Let's talk about what she was wearing. Tell me about your dress. I have to ask you. Who are you wearing? Well, first of all, that reminds me. I want to thank Zymina for all the hilarious gifts (laughs) you sent via Twitter, one of which was about the dress. She's wearing all white. It's a really cool looking dress. I was thinking of Well, it's like light gray with white mixed in. Right. It could have just as well been their colors, though. So what does that say? Does that say, like, she's going to fight for Jon Snow for ice? Or am I looking too deep into that? Well, the Night's Watch and even the people of Winterfell are now wearing black. Right. So her house colors are black and red. The side she's starting to join up with is black. I'm not sure where the gray and white fits into that. But yeah, maybe just as a symbology of snow and ice. Either way, that costume change was badass. She's fully equipped for the winter weather and it looks really good. Do you think we'll see some of that at uh, Comic-Cons? Absolutely. I noticed there's been a lot of costume changing going on. We've pointed out the color and style change with different characters. And is the black high cut a representation of those in power? We see with Cersei and King's Landing, with the women of Winterfell. This episode, Arya was wearing something different. And it was one of those longer dress and cloak type outfits. I think it's the first time I've seen her in anything resembling that for a very long time. And speaking of that, let's talk about Winterfell. Standing atop the walkway that overlooks the courtyard, Arya recalls how their father used to watch the children from up there, and Sansa remembers. Arya tells the story of the time Bran left his bow lying on the ground. Since there was no one around to stop her, she picked it up and started shooting. She wasn't good at first, but after many tries, she finally hit the bullseye and heard clapping. She looked up to see Ned smiling at her and realized... It was against the rules, but he was smiling, so I knew it wasn't wrong. The rules were wrong. I was doing what I was meant to be doing. And I was feeling really good at that point when she said that, a reflection of the things Ned was trying to do for her. He got her cereal Pharrell, took the water dancer to King's Landing with them, which there was a lot of remembrance of Cereo in this episode, and we'll get to that later. But then she comes in with the punch and says, now he's dead, killed by the Lannisters with your help. And she pulls out the scroll that Sansa wrote to Rob and starts reading it out loud. And Arya does not accept Sansa's reasoning that the Lannisters forced her to write it. She was only a child. And she also reveals she was present on the day of Ned's execution and saw Sansa there. Growing defensive, Sansa retorts that Arya should be thanking her. They have Winterfell back thanks to her. And Arya can never imagine or survive the things she did. It's so frustrating as you're listening to the two of them talk because clearly they each think they have been through an experience the other one can't understand. And if they would have just sat down and talked about some of the things they've been through, 
the hardships of the world and how much stronger they are now. Yeah. It's like that miscommunication. But Arya is really on this point, and she does not let off Sansa. She realizes it's the Northern Lord's reaction she's afraid of, and she's worried about them abandoning their support. I just didn't like the whole conversation. I feel like this is... It doesn't make me feel concerned or make me feel anything. It's just wedged in the middle of this episode. I know that Arya's not going to kill her. Do you? Yes. It's not going to happen. Do you know Sansa's not going to kill Arya? Yes. That's not going to happen. I know inevitably it's going to be Arya who kills Littlefinger with his dagger. Well, not his dagger, but the dagger he brought. Which I fully thought, and then Arya gave Sansa the dagger this episode, so is there any chance she might be the one to kill him now? No, I think she'll put it down on the bed before she walks away. I think she was just giving that to her, because after that conversation, which she was showing that, I will, I can kill you right now. Anytime. She's making a point. She hands it to her, saying, one, I'm not afraid of you, and two, I'm not going to kill you. I'm choosing not to do that yeah. right now. But there were so many other things that led you to know this wasn't finished yet. And I'm still very concerned at how much Sansa continues to seemingly, anyhow, listen to Littlefinger. I know a lot of people are talking about, are both Sansa and Arya playing Littlefinger? They know he's up to scheming and they're collaborating on their own scheming. But no, not yet. This moment least. in the courtyard where they were talking, nobody else was around. This wasn't a show for anybody. It felt like genuine emotion and I knew we were gonna have a scene eventually where Arya brings up what happened in King's Landing there's no way she doesn't still hold resentment for Sansa even though it wasn't her fault the way Arya sees it she's partially responsible for Ned's death that had to come out but it's very short-sighted for Arya to think and be angry at her for that you've got to understand that she was forced to write that she did, but she doesn't understand that. She wasn't a part of that world. While they were each going through their own journeys, Sansa's struggle was being amongst these schemers and realizing she knew nothing about that game. She was manipulated like a pawn this entire time until she started to learn a little bit how that Game of Thrones is played. Arya was in a whole separate universe, traveling amongst where the action was happening with people. Knights and battles, assassins, people killing each other, honing her skills about that, worrying for her own life, trying so hard this entire time to get back to her family, only to come back and find that A, broken, and B, riddled with what she thinks are betrayals. She thinks Sansa betrayed their family back then and is looking to betray John again now. And so that's something she can't abide. I can really see both sides of this. And that's what I mean. It's just so unfortunate that they're not able to do so. So, of course, next we get that scene where Sansa and Littlefinger privately discuss the letter. Littlefinger reassures her that the Northern Lords respect her, may even prefer her, and also Arya would never betray their family. He suggests that maybe Lady Brienne could help. She's sworn to protect both Catelyn's girls. So if one were planning to hurt the other, wouldn't she be honor-bound to intercede? This very obviously plants a seed for Sansa. She's taking that advice in. And I'm wondering if it influenced the next scene, the decision she made. She reads a letter from a raven to Brienne, an invitation to King's Landing, and says because she's not willing to set foot there herself, she's having Brienne go to represent the North. Okay, so what is Littlefinger trying to do by having that conversation? And why would that make Sansa want Brienne to leave. Right, and I was confused about this too. I've thought about it a lot. 
if he's trying to pit the Stark girls against each other to sow mistrust, and they might even get to the point where one could try to harm the other, that's never going to happen if Brienne is there. She's going to stop it, even if Pod is there. With Brienne out of the way, however, it's more of a possibility. Now, the only thing I can think is that Sansa came over to his way of thinking, and if she wants to make a move against Arya, she too needs Brienne out of the picture. Oh, I see. So he was playing to the fact that Sansa would inevitably want something to happen to Arya. Yeah, that once Arya made this move, Sansa would say, I have to take her out before she can expose me to the Northern Lords, but I can't do it with Brienne here. Because otherwise, if Sansa was afraid for her own safety, afraid Arya was coming after her, she would want Brienne by her side day and night. So it can't be for her own regard. Maybe this is just me, but I'm really not liking this. We finally got the Stark sisters together. I don't want to see this quarrel, especially this late in the game, where they're supposed to be smarter. They're supposed to be wiser. And this little tit for tat, come on. I think that's why you don't want to see those plans and what could be behind them. Because it's like we all, we don't want that, right? We don't want either sister going at each other or thinking about taking them out. It's kind of hard to figure out what conclusion we're supposed to come to other than that, though. Especially with the last scene. In this one, Sansa searches through Arya's room and finds the bag with all of Arya's faces. But Arya surprises her. Back in Bravos, before I got my first face. There was a game I used to play, the game of faces. It's simple. I ask you a question about yourself, and you try to make lies sound like the truth. If you fool me, you win. If I catch a lie, you lose. Let's play. And explains she got them during her training at Bravos to be a faceless man. She says they both wanted to be other people when they were younger. Sansa wanted to be a queen and marry a handsome man. Arya wanted to be a famous knight. But they didn't get that because the world doesn't allow girls to decide who they want to be. But with the faces, she can become anyone she wants, even Sansa. Now, my point of confusion this entire time (laughs) came from not just that Arya was doing things we wouldn't expect her to do, like the last scene, going at Sansa, getting mad at her, holding a grudge. It literally didn't seem like Arya in this episode. She was standing and moving differently, holding her arms behind her back. The way she was walking was a little bit Cereo Pharrell. The way she was talking very slow and measured was a little jockin. The game of faces that she plays with Sansa was very reminiscent of the waif. And it's certainly not like Arya to say she would love to skin Sansa to see what it would be like to walk (laughs) around with her face on. So my first question about this is reflected perfectly by the comment we got from Chris, who wrote in to say, Is Arya dead? I heard this theory first after her fight with the waif in Bravos, and I thought, bullshit, no way. But since I heard it, every time I see her, I question if this is truly Arya. I'm still not sure I buy it, but this has been my thinking, and in this episode, I feel it could be the case. Well, yeah, that, that was one of the things we discussed after watching the episode, and wondering, did the waif kill Arya, take her face, and then start to take out the people on her list as gifts to the... Many face god, or even Jockin. Yeah. Because the last scene in Bravos is very unresolved. She's there in the House of Many Faces with Jockin. She's done wrong. We can't believe she was just allowed to leave without any retribution. And 
seems like take a couple <clears throat> of faces with her. So we had said, well, if you think about it, Jockin was over in Westeros once disguised, checking names off of a list. Could he be doing the same thing again? Has Arya been dead since Bravos, and this is somebody else masquerading as Arya in order to bring back the balance to the many-faced god? Now, that would be kind of convenient if Arya's list also included a lot of names that the many-faced god is looking for. Well, no, it could be that death is owed because if she didn't die, she was going to kill those people. Right, but now Jockin is, or, you know, the waif, whoever this is, is still continuing along, killed Walder Frey. Because death is owed of those people on the list because she was going to kill those people on the list. Hmm. I mean, I'm just making that up right now, but let's go back to the scene with Nymeria. We had dissected it. We had said that what she said was, that's not me. Mm -hmm. And what it could mean, we went through all that. But what if, if this isn't really Arya, maybe the wolf could sense it, that it looks like Arya, mm. but smells different. That's why she snarled at her. So I'm not going to kill her, but the best thing to do is just go away. And her saying, that's not me, is like literally, Reinforcing it wasn't it. me. Yeah, I mean, that would put a whole new spin on that scene. And to those people that say, well, then how did they know so much about Arya's life? She just went through this whole scene about when they were younger. But if you remember, we talked about a little while back... It has sort of been proven to us that once they put on these faces, they're able to assimilate part of that person's personality, memories, even a bit of their soul, maybe, what they've gone through in their experiences. So it's entirely plausible that they would have some of that by taking on Arya. Now, option number two, we had said, maybe this is a normal part of what happens when you start to become a servant of the many face god. Arya has begun to put on faces, to assimilate little pieces of those she's taken on. And every time she does that, she loses a little bit of herself until she wakes up one day and she truly is no one. No one. Right. That makes sense as well. I think I like that better than the first one we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Only because if it was Jockin in, in the first one, sorry to go back. That's okay. I don't think he, she, or the wave would be so silly with this whole Sansa note. Yeah. Right? Because the they first would be scene was very different from the second scene. As right. I said, it felt like Arya more in the first scene. We have also heard a few other ones. One, which I entertained for a little bit, I thought was pretty cool, is that Littlefinger is actually a many-faced god. And that was Littlefinger in there. There is a part in that conversation that Arya's having with Sansa where it kind of sounded like Littlefinger's cadence, just for a moment. I saw that, but I also thought it could be Jockin, it could be Sirio. There's so many different people she's yeah. kind of assimilated over time. It's not clearly one or the other. And what's crazy is when you look at Littlefinger's face, I think last episode, when Arya picked up the scroll and left his room, the way the shadow goes over it, it looks like a face. Mm. As if like the face was cut off but it's little fingers. I, I don't know. This is really fun, but I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. We love to go through the possibilities. I mean, I also heard from Bethany, is Littlefinger already dead in this scene? And that was actually Arya talking to Sansa about let's send Brienne away. So Arya's already taken out wow. Littlefinger. That would be cool, too. So it's all really interesting to think about. I don't think any of these are as likely as the top two contenders, which is that... Arya's losing pieces of herself, and it's making her act in a way that she normally wouldn't, which is now making Sansa defensive and is going to turn the two of them against each other, 
just the way Littlefinger wanted, or it is somehow part of a double scheme. They're aware of Littlefinger and what he's after, and they're playing their own game. And the only reason I say that is we haven't seen Bran and how he figures into this equation. <laughs> so I think we need to get that piece of things too before we know for sure. Yeah, so maybe if they talk to Bran, he'll finally help in some way. Instead of being like, you used Crest toothpaste two years ago. <laughs> Bren, we get it. You have skills. But can, can you actually help us with this? This is where he could stop the death of a Stark by the hands of another Stark. Surely he has to come into play here. And maybe he already has. And we just didn't notice it. There's an article by Uproxx that says, if you take a closer listen to the scenes involving Santa, Arya, and Littlefinger, you'll notice Raven squawking in the background. You can hear them repeatedly when Littlefinger tries to convince Sansa to set Brienne on Arya. And again, when Sansa goes snooping through Arya's room. Is this a sign Bran is actually watching everything that's happening? Well, I hope so. And thank you to Claudio for sending us that article. Moving along, our last scenes to discuss took place north of the wall. Now, I know we went through the blow-by-blow in the instant coffee, but there were some things we didn't touch on. If you haven't heard it yet and you want to hear even more about north of the wall, definitely check out our instant coffee episode. These scenes started out with some really great conversations between our main crew. How'd you keep your balls from freezing off? You got to keep moving, and that's the secret. Walking's good, fighting's better, fucking's best. There's not a living woman within 100 miles of here. We have to make do with what we've got. I thought it was amazing to think about the fact that Tormund has never been south of Winterfell, and Gendry has never even seen snow before. They're on such opposite sides of the fence and you have all of these different kinds of people uniting to fight this common enemy. And even Tormund points out to us that smart people don't come up here looking for the dead. Now, we had thrown a lot of shade at this whole catch a white plan, wondering why it was necessary and saying it was a really bad idea. And isn't this a little bit unreasonable to think that they're going to be able to convince Cersei of this? But Chris sent in a really great comment about it, saying John needs the entire continent of Westeros to help him fight the Night King. Not just the North, not just Danny. everyone has to help. Getting a white and bringing it to Cersei is the only way to get that to happen. Granted, Cersei is not to be trusted, but it is mutually assured destruction. Help us or we all die. This is the only play. There is no other way to get the full support of the kingdom. Doing it without Cersei is just begging for a fight on both sides. And even if they defeat that army, Cersei could pick the bones. They need her involved. So this is a good point and one we've brought up repeatedly. Every time they fight against each other, it's more men for the army of the dead. They need every living man possible to go up against the Night King and his whites. I understood why they wanted to do it. I just thought the plan was lacking. Yeah, in some strategy. Yeah. Well, part of that strategy, we said, is why didn't they bring more dragonglass with them? We see this is a great weapon. They were just at Dragonstone mining for it, and yet they didn't seem to have a lot of it with them. Well, maybe they did, and we just missed some of it. Eric said, just a heads up, Jorah, Tormund, and the Hound all had makeshift dragonglass weapons with them. If you look carefully, they never used their regular swords. So they said Tormund had it on that axe that he had made. Jorah had a dagger with him, which I wondered. The bear was lit on fire, hacked at, but when Jorah hit it with the dagger, it went down. Yeah, looking at it again, we can definitely see that they now have dragonglass weapons. One, that's a risk you take when you record a podcast right after watching an episode. But (laughs) two, they didn't even mention it. No, it wasn't obvious at all. They should have, when they were walking... 
which I loved all the conversations they were having when they were walking. I loved how they reminded us Tormund is hilarious <laughs> and he's a cool dude and a little wacky. They reminded us of the hound and how actually sensitive of a dude he is be- behind that exterior. But they could have also been talking, been like pulled out one of the daggers and said to John, like, do you really think this is going to do anything to them? Yeah. You know, that, that would have been great conversation. Yeah, because I wouldn't blame you for getting through this entire episode and never realizing they were using it. Plus, we had talked a lot about how the dragonglass can hurt the White Walkers, but in the books, it could not kill a white. Right. The only way to kill a white was through fire or hacking them to bits. But it does appear that TV canon is going to change this. In fact, Dave Hill confirmed they're moving away from the books in that regard. It's probably too complicated for TV. Absolutely. They'd have to visually show the difference every time. It'd be too much. And if not, then what was the point in going to get all this dragon glass if it can only be used on the White Walkers? Now it's a way we can fight that whole army. Also in that conversation, Tormund pointed out something key, that the king beyond the wall never bent the knee, but look how many of his people died for his pride. Met this dragon queen, huh? And And she'll only fight beside us if I bend the knee. You spent too much time with the free folk. Now you don't like kneeling. Mansreda was a brave man, a proud man. The king beyond the wall never bent the knee. How many of his people died for his pride? And that was for sure foreshadowing that John was going to bend the knee later to Danny. Well, it is in, in looking back at it, but I didn't watch that and say, oh, he's going to bend the knee. I wondered it at the time because we know that John does have a lot of pride, but he has been putting his people and his mission first. And I think he really realized that in the conversation with Thoros where he's wondering what in the heck this Lord of Light wants and what's the purpose of their whole mission. And Thoros tells him, we're soldiers. We just need to know what we're fighting for, and that's life. We won't find much joy, but we can keep others alive. And that really made sense to John because it brought back his Night's Watch vows. He is the shield that guards the realms of men. This has been the point of his whole life. I also really enjoyed the conversation between John and Jorah we talked about last time. With the exchange of Longclaw, he tried to give it to him, Jorah gave it back, and they're discussing the cost of honor to their fathers. At the same time, John's thinking about his pride and how he can't let that get the better of himself. He also can't fall into the traps that Ned made, being so honorable to a fault that it caused him to be executed. Jorah reflects that it caused his father to die in a mutiny, and I also thought that this kind of indicated a redemptive moment for Jorah because Gior always wanted him to come and take the black, be part of the Night's Watch, right? That was his dying wish. And here Jorah is fighting with them for the North and for the betterment of the realm. So I think the old bear would have been proud. After our great dialogue, we come to that undead bear fight. What I wanted to point out, there was a lot of people talking about this being a dead polar bear. It actually is what's called a snow bear, and they talk about those in the books. Real-life polar bears can be about 5 feet tall up to the shoulder. Snow bears in the books could be 13 feet tall. Whoa. It's like the difference between real wolves and dire wolves. You see how much larger the dire wolves are. So this thing they were fighting was no joke. Yeah, you got to watch the behind-the-scenes footage of how they did that. 
It's pretty amazing. They had shapes for the bear that they were fighting, and it was on fire. Mm-hmm. It was very cool. I, I won't even try to explain it. There was also a really great interview with Richard Dormer, who plays Beric Dondarrion, and they asked him what it was like to fight with that flaming sword. And he said, yes, the flaming sword is real. It only burns for two minutes at a time, and you can't swing it too quickly. So you have to slow down your movements, which is actually quite tiring. It weighs about three times as much as a normal sword. Wow. So he gets a lot more into that. If you're interested, they also have that up on HBO.com. Then we move on to the scene where they capture the lone white. They do so by fighting that small group and John kills the White Walker. The big thing there is it reveals they are a keystone army. If you kill the creator, the White Walker that animated these whites, they will all die. They crumble. After that, we get the attack by the large white horde. When they see them coming, John sends Gendry back to the wall to send out a raven. The rest of the group is surrounded. They have to fall back to the rocky outcrop, and they're stuck there the rest of that day, all night, and into the next day. Not a comfortable position to be in. I don't know how you would even get some sleep out there, knowing they're right there. I think the only reason they were sleeping is they were half frozen by that point. I mean, it's kind of amazing that they didn't all die of hypothermia. I'm having trouble trying not to repeat myself of what I said last episode. <laughs> These were all great scenes, and just the visuals alone made this episode amazing. Yeah, we talked about how the fighting was really spectacular, and the showrunners have commented on the past as to John in these fight scenes, that he does his own stunt work with swords, and so they wanted more of that, and they tried to incorporate it into this episode. And they also complimented his excellent facial acting. I can't remember the exact length of time, but I think it was something like eight minutes in this scene that went by without any real dialogue. Mm. You know, they would say a word here or there. They would yell, help. But mostly what was being conveyed was just through their faces. Yeah, that's true. And it was brilliant, completely suspenseful, especially that one part where they did the slow motion shot and John kind of pans around at each Mm -hmm. of the crew that's left and he's realizing this is it this is the moment where we all just go out fighting i thought he perfectly conveyed all of that as well as the other members jorah's look when he turns around to him and he's scared to death it was just incredible i would love to see that scene in virtual reality how amazing would that be if you could walk around and be part of you know you can walk up there and be a part of them fighting or you can walk through and like walk to the night king and see yeah. what he's up to. Up close. Can you imagine that? Oh, that'd be so cool. That's the movies and TV shows of the future. Well, if you do want a little more of an in-depth look, they have, I think it was like a 13-minute video mm-hmm. about the Frozen Lake sequence. And in an interview, the actor who plays Tormund commented on this. He said it was a huge sequence. It took at least a month to shoot. There were so many kills, we didn't have the time or capacity to choreograph every single move. So the fantastic thing we did was an alphabet of choreographed movements. Every one of us had an alphabet of seven kills, seven movements. So they could just throw whites at us. And because the stuntmen knew the language too, we would improvise with that alphabet. After a couple of days, it became very organic and extremely real because people were coming from everywhere at the same time. (laughs) They also talked about how all of the actors working here, so yeah, they spent at least a month together shooting on this. They were all really great guys. And I think something like five of them played musical instruments. So they formed their own mini band and started playing music in between. Well, yeah, they're in the middle of nowhere. It's not like they could go out to a bar. Maybe (laughs) there's a bar in a distance, but... (laughs) 
They had their own fun. They really did a good job in giving us things to visually focus on throughout the chaos because that could have easily been lost where we don't know who's who. Everyone's just hacking at each other. So the cinematography was perfectly planned. There are moments where they use the confusion to their benefit. There's a part where they're all fighting and you know the whites have taken somebody down, but you're not quite sure who it is. Then the moment where the whites tackle Tormund and you can't tell if they've pulled him away yet until the hound comes in to save him. So I think they flipped back and forth between what worked for that moment. Do we create that mass confusion and and distraction for the viewers or Mm -hmm. give them one actor, one shot to focus (laughs) on? such as the slow motion scene where we at the end really pan in on John and his acceptance of the fact. And that's when you get Danny swooping in to save the day and the fire lighting up the background. Now, there was a lot of complaints that we're not getting the deaths that we normally get with Game of Thrones. Towards the end of the season, second to last season, we should be getting more main characters dying. I understand where they're coming from because with Game of Thrones... We love the fact that we never know who's going to die, no matter who. No one's untouchable. And now people are starting to feel like, oh, they're not going to kill him. We know they're not going to kill him. But... Do you really want your characters killed off at this point? Well, even not even that. They killed a dragon. Yeah, that, that has enough weight. Yeah. And they took Thoros. It's not like they didn't take anyone. I'll admit I thought another person was going to go, be that Jorah or Tormund. But I think between Thoros, Uncle Benjen, and the massive death of a dragon, it has the impact I was looking for. Absolutely. And believe you me, they're going to die. You just have to be patient. Yeah, that's true. When we talked about this last time, all of the fighting, the scene with the dragons torching the whites, the fact that the whole group is able to get up onto Drogon's back except Jon, and this being the part where Viserion was taken down and killed with the ice spear that the White Walkers use. Now, we don't have a name for this yet other than an ice spear. We do know that the book describes them as razor-thin shards of ice crystals, sharper than any human blade could ever be. George R.R. Martin has stated they are made of ice, though only in the same sense that Valyrian steel is technically made out of iron. Both are infused with spells that can give them magical powers far beyond that. So, White Walkers can do things with ice we can't imagine, according to Martin. This does make a lot of sense, because it killed Viserion so quickly and easily, much the same way we've seen Dragonglass or Valyrian Steel take down a White Walker. They each have vulnerabilities, the ice side to the fire and the fire side to the ice. So speaking of that, we got a comment from Camille who said, He's really been enjoying the vibes he's getting from GOT. He liked this episode a lot until the ending scene, which threw it off for him. He asks, if the White Walkers and their whites are on the ice side, how can the Night King reanimate a dragon, which is the fire side? That's where I was lost. It makes sense White Walkers have their vulnerability to dragonglass and valyrian steel, dragons the vulnerability to the ice. So I wrote back to say, I don't think this has anything to do with the fire ice side. I understand this dragon is fire and he comes from the power of that magic or that god, whatever you want to call it. But once he dies, he's just another dead creature. We have seen the White Walkers can reanimate anything dead from people to snow bears to giants and now dragons. As soon as that creature is dead, it seems like it becomes the Dominion if they do, in fact, serve the Great Other, the Dominion of Death. 
And so the Night King is able to bring him back to their side in that same way he can resurrect anything else. At least I, I think. Moving along, we have two scenes left. The first was back at Eastwatch, where the Hound leaves with his captured white. Now, was he rowing alone with that white? Where was he going? Is he planning on rowing all the way to King's Landing alone? Why is he separate from the rest of the group? No, I think they were rowing to the ships. Just to the ships? Yeah. Okay, that got me a little nervous. It sounded <laughs> like they were all saying goodbye to him. So we see they're going to be boarding one of their Greyjoy ships. Danny doesn't want to leave. She's waiting with the slimmest hope that John could come back. He does, in fact, return unconscious on his horse, and they board him up. They put him in bed, where he later wakes to find Danny beside him and apologizes to her for the loss of the dragon. He admits she will make the best ruler and metaphorically bends the knee, saying he believes his people will follow her as well. And they have a touching moment together. You have to see it tonight. Now I know. The dragons are my children. They're the only children I'll ever have. Do you understand? We are going to destroy the Night King and his army. We'll do it together. Where clearly something is a-brewing. They're literally being shipped. Aha, <laughs> they're being <laughs> shipped on a ship. Sorry, that was corny. Look, we saw it coming. We want it to happen. Mm-hmm. Their baby's going to have like one red eye and one blue eye. <laughs> Very cool. It's only a matter of time. Maybe during the off season, Danny gets pregnant. Oh, could that happen off screen? That's interesting. If they do end up together, where is John going to stay? If he's king of the north, he can't be. Well, that's well, true. I, if she's assuming she's if she posts up at King's Landing yeah. or even Dragonstone. So I wonder how that would work out. Yeah, I don't know how those logistics will work. One of them's going to be dead. So it doesn't matter. No. <laughs> Damn it. Well, yeah, we talked about how after the touching moment, there was a little bit of an odd reaction, and we went through on the instant cast what that might mean. Well, thinking about the possibility of Danny becoming pregnant again, we had said earlier, does that have anything to do with the Targaryen blood that she and John would both share? And we always can't help but wonder how this goes back to Miri Mazdor's prophecy that you had brought up. Matt W. wrote in to say he had a thought about the prophecy. When the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, could this be talking about East Watch? Hmm. The sun will set there because that's where the White Walkers will come across, and it'll be the beginning of the total darkness and the long night. That's a great interpretation I hadn't considered. When the seas go dry could literally just mean the seas freezing over because of winter or the walkers coming. When mountains blow in the wind... He thinks one of the dragons may incinerate the mountain, making his ashes blow in the wind. Oh, my goodness. He dies by fire after all this? Well, I guess ice fire. Any kind of fire would make his ashes blow in the wind, I suppose. And then, yes, if John and Danny hook up again, the Targaryen blood may be why she is able to bear a child. So really great thoughts on that prophecy. I love it. I now totally believe it. Well, finally, in our last scene north of the wall, we see the White Army pulling giant chains from the icy water. They are removing the fallen Viserion. We've had our complaints last episode. I won't reiterate it, but let me reiterate it. Uh, (laughs) No, because we have some answers to it, so go ahead. The chains. Where did the chains come from? Again, from uprocks.com. In one of the shots, you can see a barge in the left-hand corner of the screen that was used to ferry people across the water when it's not frozen. Some barges use poles. Others use chains. In a second shot, you can see the barge in the foreground with the same chain visible. 
yes, it's a bit unusual and convenient that it's right there, but uh, I guess that's what explains how they got the chains. They are putting things in even where it stretches the belief a bit, and that's what I appreciated. I talked in the instant coffee about how they did attempt to show the passage of time in order for Gendry to be able to get to the wall, send the raven out, and Danny to get there. They had them fighting the army, waiting on the rock all through the night into the next day. It's still definitely not enough time, but at least the effort was being made to kind of hint at that. Mm -hmm. And same thing with the dragon glass weapon, same thing with the chains. Maybe it's all happening so quickly that there are little bits of explanation that we're overlooking. So I really like pointing this stuff out. Definitely doesn't cover everything, but it helps for me. The second part you brought up is how do the chains get down there? How do they even put it around the dragon? Right. I had said, well, the whites seem like they go under that water fine. They come back up. Nothing's wrong with them. But I don't think they can swim. But you that said they couldn't point. swim. Yeah. So Chris wrote in to say, well, they don't need to swim back up. The white walkers tell them, you two go down there, put this chain around the neck. Thanks. See you never again. True. Good point. <laughs> Very good point. I just wish, and I said this last episode, the Night King went to the ice and was like, damn, I told you guys to kill him, but keep him, you know, so I, so I can turn him and then it'd be moot. But of course, that's my own fairy tale world where everything works out and Ned is still alive. So. <laughs> <laughs> that covers the crow's eye view, but we had a few more Clatcher's comments. Brendan wrote in to point out something about Cersei's pregnancy. We had mentioned a few episodes ago that... Perhaps Cersei could not be pregnant or would lose that child due to the prophecy she was given by Magni the Frog. And Brendan pointed out that she, in fact, had four children, the first child who died in infancy. Now, we did remember about him, but we forgot to mention it in that episode because I'm not sure if that does affect the prophecy. She lost this child and she lost it young. In GOT book universe, they had a different outlook on babies. It was so common to lose them young that they didn't even give them real names until, I can't remember if it's their first birthday or their second, something later on. They gave them milk names, something that they would call them in the meantime. So when Maggie's coming up with this prophecy, I'm not sure she would have counted that in the number. She might have just said three children, like that make it later into childhood right. or adulthood. But it's a great point, and thank you for the catch. There are a lot of people on both sides of that thinking Cersei could be lying in order to control Jamie, or she could have slept with him in the effort to get pregnant to control Jamie. Either way, I think it brings you to the same end of why she did this. Also, Game of Thrones could be using it as a tool to be able to say to us that Cersei now has a new reason to be alive and a new reason to not go completely insane. And to keep fighting. Yeah. So thank you for that. Related to Arya, Elizabeth wrote in to say, Do you think with all the deaths by Arya's hand, the many-faced god will determine a death is owed, i.e. Arya's death? <sighs> well, if our first option we brought up earlier is false, and we really hope it is <laughs> that Arya's not dead already, it could still come into play that we never did see the follow-through. Does Jacken or the House of Black and White seek any kind of balance for what she did there, for not playing by those rules? Do but, they come after her? But the death ode could have been the waif. Right. We've seen that sort of one-for-one one equation earlier uh -huh. with them, so maybe they consider that paid up. Sticking with the Aria theme, on Twitter, at Cianimus82 wrote, Etsy Casey Podcast, would you rather see Arya or Sansa kill Littlefinger? And do you think they already know he is pitting them against each other? You know my answer. 
I'd rather Arya kill Littlefinger. At this point in the story, I would as well, except that Arya doesn't have as much insight into some of the terrible things that Littlefinger has done. But it would look so much cooler if Arya did it. And she'd have the face. That's true. But because of everything that Sansa's been through and being so manipulated by Littlefinger, maybe she doesn't see yet how truly terrible he can be. She's still kind of thinking he serves a purpose to her and she'd rather have him here where she can selectively listen to his guidance Mm -hmm. than elsewhere. But if she finds out that he's been up to some really terrible things, such as trying to get her to kill her own sister, then we could get that moment where it'd be more satisfying to see Sansa do it. And UFO 357 wrote in with that topic we were talking about before, saying Arya is aware of Littlefinger's plans and scheming and a willing participant at this point to get Littlefinger to believe he has manipulated on her, to get Littlefinger to believe he has successfully manipulated her, but she will turn on him eventually. So that's the best case scenario we discussed where one or both sisters is aware he's scheming and they're double playing him. I don't think so yet. I don't see it yet. Because they're fighting each other, not in the open, like you said before. I think they're not aware yet, but they will become privy to it. And Bran gives them that yeah. knowledge... And we get all three Starks working together to bring Littlefinger down. That's a perfect world. On Twitter, Claudio wrote to us and said, I just read an interesting comment about Viserion, being he's essentially a walker and not a white. Does that mean he can raise the dead? How do we know that he's a walker and not a white? I don't think we know that. All we saw was the Night King touch him and his eye turn blue, which happens with both. Well, I think because the whites are animated without him touching them, And we saw that the babies are animated when he touches their face, just like he did with... That's a good point. I still think it's a leap, though. We don't don't have that proven yet. Yeah, I think it's when they transform them when it's still alive. And a baby is weak enough that he can transform a live person into a white walker. Right. Once they're dead and just reanimated, that's more like necromancy and they become a white. Right. I also think even though we only saw the Night King touch the baby's head, there is more of a ritual that goes along with that. Yeah. Turning them into a white walker. They were on an altar. There was special things happening. And by the way, it's important to note that in the earlier scene, when the crew was first going out looking for the white and the hound saw the mountain in the distance, which he recognized as the mountain from his vision in the flames. Mm -hmm. It was pointed out, this is the same location when we got Bran's vision of how the first White Walker was created. In that scene, you can see that same mountain in the background. It looks like that same spot, but in a much greener springtime. (laughs) Before winter had come. All right, the last two comments. Matt wrote in to say, he believes dragonglass plus regular steel equals valyrian steel. In other words, to make Valyrian steel, you need these two elements, dragonglass and regular steel. And I agree. I don't know if that's ever been specifically stated in the books, but if not, hinted at. And it's not just the ingredients that are important, but how it's forged. So Camille said, what if Valyrian steel needs dragon fire to help forge it? And it does. That's proven in book universe. Valyrian steel is a form of metal that was forged in the days of the mighty Valyrian freehold. When fashioned into weapons, the steel can hold an especially keen edge, remaining sharp forever without needing to be honed. Aside from its sharpness, it's recognizable by its strength and light weight, as well as a distinctive rippled pattern visible in blades made from it. In this way, it shares many of its properties with real-life Damascus steel, that flowing pattern, the exceptional quality, and the secrets of how it's made, which are lost now. 
so the secrets of forging Valyrian steel were lost in the doom, after which creating a new Valyrian steel weapon became impossible. The material was expensive to begin with, so Valyrian steel swords, such as House Stark's ice, were already valued heirlooms passed down from one generation to the next in powerful noble families. Now, the only ones left mostly seem to be house swords. So skilled smiths can reforge Valyrian steel weapons by melting down existing ones, such as what we saw them do with ice, take it and make it into two different swords. But even that's a really difficult process. Making it to begin with, they can't do it anymore. According to legend, Valyrian steel was forged with dragon fire and infused with magical spells. Some say with blood magic, literally requiring fire and blood. And having been forged with dragon fire, Valyrian steel is incredibly resistant to damage from normal fire. So Camille and Matt, you are both correct. These two things go into making it. It does need dragon fire to forge it. And there's also magical spells placed upon it. I also thought that last line about resistance to damage from normal fire could be really key if we need to turn one of our existing Valyrian steel blades into Lightbringer. I have a few more Twitter comments and a few other things I want to talk about. First, one of our clatchers, Claudio, brought up uh, a scene of the Night King walking over the fire to throw the spear, and mm -hmm. that is the dragon fire. So it looks like, at least while it's burning, it doesn't hurt White Walkers, even dragon fire. The same way we saw with the fire that the Children of the Forest threw at them. Second, the internet was ablaze with the fact that there's a scene when Jon Snow leaps out of the ice water. His, his sword is in front of him. It looks like the direwolf on the edge of his sword. On the pommel. His eye opens or something happens to his eye once Jon Snow leaps out. But yeah, I, when he's underwater, we get that zoomed in shot of just Longclaw on the edge of the ice. Yeah. So they're talking about that compared to when he finally comes up out of the water. But I watched it over and over and over again. And the timing of it, I think it's really Jon Snow's hand bursting out of the water, and it's just water landing on the pummel. Yeah, splashing on it, and then a little kind of play on light as they're backing away from it. I yeah. agree, although the effect was pretty cool. It would be awesome if that meant something, but I don't think so, because it would have either glowed blue or red. Yeah, I think they would have made it more obvious, perhaps. On Twitter, Chris wrote to us, The horn Gren, Ed, and Sam found at the fist of the first men will be useful now, right? We used to have a lot of theories about different horns on this show. There certainly was indications of that from the books. There was also some thoughts about a horn that Euron was going to find. Since they haven't gone back to that in TV universe much, including this horn, I don't know if they're going to bring it back. I can't see why they would put it on there for no reason, but I think we'd have to see that come back real soon. And we don't want to divulge what the horn could do, because if you're not a book reader... It could spoil. Yeah. Mike wrote, oh man, what an emotional roller coaster. Yes, indeed. And that's what we loved about it. I think we spoke about that a lot last episode, how it would make you feel sad, make you feel happy and laugh, make you panicked, make you cry mm. again. It was a really good episode. Matt wrote in to point out, we were talking about the Valyrian steel swords, which ones could end up in the hands of who by the end of the story. He showed us a picture where you can see Widow's Whale seems to have a ruby in the hilt, and he wondered if maybe this is one of Rhaegar's rubies. When his armor was smashed on the trident when Robert beat him with the warhammer, all of his rubies went scattered into the water, never to be seen again, but could one of those have been collected and put into the sword Widow's Whale? That would be really cool, and the picture seems to reinforce it, but I thought out of all the blades, 
for John to wind up with in the end, Widow's Will was least likely due to the naming. I thought either he would stay with Longclaw or get his hands back on Oathkeeper, more likely. So I'm not really sure, but a great catch. And we got a lot of emails and tweets about how much they loved the episode or how much they hated the episode. Some feeling like the last few episodes have favored Flash over Substance. We agree with all of it. We see the what everyone thinks in both of them. And we got plenty of other emails. Thank you so much for writing. There was one more that gave us an article about John himself being Lightbringer. So not having to transform a sword that exists on the show, but he being the embodiment of fire and ice, as we've been talking about, actually is the living Lightbringer, which is kind of a cool take on that. If you're interested in it, we'll put up the link, which is on inverse.com. I actually like that because... I keep saying he has an iconic sword already, and we're not going to want him to drop that one for another one. Yeah, well, I think it could still be cool if Jamie needs to forge some kind of sword like that by killing Cersei, but maybe there's different parts to all of this. Maybe Danny is the prince that was promised, but it doesn't involve her having a sword. Maybe Jamie forges the sword Lightbringer, and maybe John is the living embodiment of fire and ice that has to stop the long night. Perhaps you can have all three. <laughs> So as you said, shout out to everybody that wrote in, including John Kay, Christina, and anyone else we haven't mentioned. We really appreciate your feedback. And that brings us to our Raven rating for the episode. On a scale of 1 to 10, Jason, what do you give episode 6? I give the episode 9.7 Ravens. For everything we've said, the emotions that you go through, the visual spectacle, the heartbreaking storyline, it was a great second to last episode. Okay, get ready to crucify me for being a fanboy. By the way, can I be a fanboy? I don't know how that works. I'm giving this episode a 9.9 Ravens. You know I'm not a very high rater on the whole. I do love Game of Thrones. I especially love this episode. If I can watch it three times and still enjoy it, the good is outweighing the bad for me. So way to keep the action of the penultimates going. I can't wait to see what happens in episode seven. And on to MVB, we put up our Clatcher poll. Jason, do you have the results? Yes. Now, we were going to record this Tuesday night, but it's Monday night, and it works out better if we record tonight. So there's 11 hours left on this poll. So by the time this poll is finished, the results may be different because we have two MVBs that are very close to each other right now. Ooh, it's a neck-and-neck neck race. Maybe we'll tweet any updates that come between now and the close of the poll. But as it stands now... 17% say Jon Snow. 18% said Gendry. 30% the Night King, and 35% Danny and Drogon. So Danny and Drogon winning, but the Night King in a close second. Both of those make complete sense. You could argue for either of them. With the Night King, we have stated that we feel this has been his plan all along. He has green sight, we believe, and he knew he needed a dragon, and he was waiting, that's why they've been north of the wall for so long, for this situation to occur so that he could take out a dragon. I definitely agree, but I think the argument is there for Danny and Drogon as well, who are currently leading. And in fact, that is who I'm giving my MVB to, the combined team of Danny and Drogon. It's funny, as I look back over my MVBs for the season, I've kind of been giving it to the little guy, if you will, the second tier, Sam, Jorah, Davos, Bronn, and Gendry. So this is my first time giving it to a major player. And one of my first throughout the entire Game of Thrones run that's going to Danny, surprisingly enough. 
I agree, and I will give it to Danny and Drogon as well. For the same reasons, she saved the day. She provided the three-dragon fight that we always wanted. She had a dope outfit. (laughs) Drogon definitely carried his weight here. Between torching the whites, getting most of our crew out of there to safety, dodging the ice spear in the end, and he got her up pretty fast to north of the wall where they were in the first place. So good for you, Drogon. On the poll, we got some messages. Melly wrote, I say John. He's the one with all the initiatives. He's the one moving forward with this plan. He definitely showed a lot of skill and some badass fighting here. Scott wrote, I think it's the Night King, but who cares? Episode was amazing. (laughs) Yeah, if there was ever a time to give it to a bad guy, the Night King is racking up the points here. Carbon wrote, pains me to vote for the Night King, but taking down and turning Viserion is a game changer. Hmm. And a bunch more very similar to that. Thank you guys so much for being a part of the crew and joining in on this conversation. Last but not least, we have our sneak peek through the heart tree to next week's episode. So if you are afraid of that, spoilers, potentially, we will see you next time. For everyone that's still here, for our episode seven, we do not have a title yet. We don't know what it's going to be called. We do know that they're saying it's going to be 70 minutes long. Whoa. The longest in the season. And it will be directed by Jeremy Padesua, another GOT veteran. And we got our preview. We see the Unsullied are back. We finally figured out where they were. <laughs> yeah, it looks like Danny brought her army there, just in case, maybe to show them. We can take you out right now. Yeah, this meeting is going down. John is meeting Cersei. We see that happening. I didn't see Danny there. I'm assuming she is going to be at this meeting, but I don't know. She wasn't in that picture where we see them all kind of getting ready to talk, and I assume John getting ready to present his evidence of the white. Yeah, and I don't think Sansa or Arya were there either. They're definitely not going. Smart choice by Sansa to say, I don't need to be there right now. We're also going to come back to Theon. He's present in the episode somehow. We see the Greyjoy ships. I wonder if this is going to be our big moment for Theon in the season finale. This preview did not show much. No. It was very quick. (laughs) They were very tight-lipped about it. We saw, I think it's Theon, on a beach falling down. Falling to his knees. Now, isn't that part of the clip we got in the preview for the entire season? I believe so. Early on, there was a man on the beach that we couldn't make out. So I'm wondering what that's about. But this is going to be it. We're going to see... Oh, I think we do see... We're going to see Cersei and see uh, how she reacts to this. Guaranteed, she's going to ask him to bend the knee or tell them to bend the knee. Now, is Tyrion there? To participate yes. in this discussion. Tyrion's this is going to get super tense. Yeah. Lannister reunion. And we're going to get somewhat of a Clegane bowl. At least they're going to look at each other and snarl a little bit. Oh, I think it could even be more than that. If they start fighting, everyone starts fighting, no? Or they say, we won't bend the knee, but uh, your champion against our champion? I don't know. <laughs> well, we could have to come to single combat for some reason. I'm not really sure, but you're getting them both in the same place at the same time, which we've been waiting for for seasons. I don't know. I think it's going to be really interesting. I wonder if Danny's going to be like in the background far away with her dragons. Just kind of like surveying, but yeah. leaving the talking to John. Yeah. That would be interesting. So I'm intrigued and I'm very excited for the season finale. And that won't be it for us. We're going to have a bonus episode after that. And then there'll be a little bit of a gap. But if you miss us and you want to hear more podcasts, don't forget we have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash CKC podcast, where you can get bonus content and movie reviews. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month and choose your tier depending on what kind of extra content you want to receive each month. 
Give it a try for one month. Check it out. See if you like it. We have a really fun time there. It's a lot more loose. It's hard to explain. I think you guys would really enjoy it. And then after that, we have our Mr. Robot podcast. You can either join us in listening to Mr. Robot on our Coffee Clatch Crew Mr. Robot channel or go to our main channel. Just look up Coffee Clatch Crew. It's the white one with just the Coffee Clatch Crew name and our little icon dude. That you get every episode we ever do. If you're worried about missing something, just subscribe to that main channel. You'll never miss a beat from CKC. And that's it. Hopefully the pain is dwindling for everyone else. Until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Please hang up and try again.